Okay, so I have a lot of notes that won't display, um, so I'll have to be focused here a lot. There are three things that we want to look about look at today uh, as it relates to sentences in Scripture. Uh, so serious reading and love letters, nine things to look for in sentences, and an example from Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, we have a church of growth problem, so... There's two seats up here, there's two seats over there, there's a few seats in the back, and if anybody else walks in, Matt's already on it, we'll get some more chairs. All right, so introduction to sentences. If Tracy and I invited you over to our home for dinner and served you a gourmet assortment of baby food jars, would you be surprised? Would you be confused, disappointed? Would you appreciate it? I know there's some adults that still love the tasty, uh, give me an example of uh, atrocious baby food. Green peas aren't the worst. There's some that are like, that one's okay. Uh, like there's some that are combos like prunes and turnip greens or something in a, in a baby food. All right, would you be, yeah, how would you respond to that? Page 51 of the book we've been using as a guide, Grasping God's Word, says plunging into the Word of God is similar to sitting down at a meal. We expect something nourishing, something substantial, something appropriate to our maturity level, but we often only come away with baby food. This is not a reflection on the Word of God, rather a reflection on us and our inability to extract the meat and to enjoy it. Indeed, some Christians have become so accustomed to baby food, baby food, that they no longer desire strong food. What about you? Do you long to dig deeper into God's word? Our goal, this class in that book, is to help you spiritually feed yourself and to do so well. So Hebrews 12 tells us uh, truth about the word of God written. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intention of our heart. Uh, the Word of God does not become alive when you pray for it to in your quiet time. It is alive. It is active. And our believing it doesn't make it any more alive or any more active. But faith, united with the Word written, is the Holy Spirit's playground for our spiritual growth. So the book says on page 52, the Bible is the word of God. It's not boring. We simply need to learn how to read it with more insight and understanding. So Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, which will cover two slides, is a gracious rebuke to inability, to those with the inability to digest the meat of God's word. So to break up the monotony, let's get two readers quickly, one to read this slide, one to read the next, Hebrews 5, 11 and following. Somebody go for it. Concerning you, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. But by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Next slide. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Just go back to one statement in the first slide quickly. Right here, concerning him, 
we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. This comes in the book of Hebrews, which I regard, may expose my biblical immaturity here, the most magisterial look at the person and work of Christ in a condensed way in the whole Bible. And the writer of Hebrews says, we would have said more, but you're not able to hear it. What might he have said if the audience was able to digest it? Now we have, in God's kind providence, what we are supposed to have had in the word written, but uh, the Bible is not an exhaustive revelation of God. It is absolutely inerrant, inspired, sufficient, and adequate. God knows what we need. Um, but there could have been more said that was left unsaid. So three things we want to talk about. I said the first is serious reading and love letters. This is a big illustration. I'm going to read almost verbatim from a couple pages in Grasping God's Word. How to read a love letter. All right, so I want you to think about this. This comes from page 52 and following. In April, Kevin and Whitney moved beyond being just friends. They went on their first real date. By mid-May, Kevin was thinking this could be real love. In June, however, before the young couple said anything specific to each other about the relationship, Whitney traveled to Ghana with other members of her church on a two-month mission trip to an isolated rural area that did not have email or phone Two weeks went by, and Kevin didn't hear anything from Whitney. Finally, the team visited a city that had internet service, and the anxious Kevin gets the precious email he's been longing for from Whitney. To read it as accurately as he would like would require several dictionaries and a good deal of close work with a few experts of etymology and philology. However, he'll do all right without them. He will ponder the exact shade of meaning of every word, every comma. The email starts off with, Hi, Kevin. What, he asks himself, is the exact significance of those two words? Did she refrain from saying, Dear Kevin, because she was bashful? Maybe she would have said, Hi, so-and-so, to anybody. A worried frown now appears on his face, but it disappears as soon as he really gets to thinking about the first sentence. She certainly wouldn't have written that to just anybody. And so he works his way through the email. One moment perched blissfully on a cloud, the next moment huddled miserably behind an eight ball. It has started a hundred questions in his mind. He could quote it by heart. In fact, he will to himself for weeks to come. A lovesick man is a good reader because he scrutinizes the text for all the details even the most minute. The authors of the book say one of the most critical skills needed in reading the Bible is the ability to see the details. Most of us read the Bible too quickly, and we skip over the details of the text. So in reading sentences, especially, we want to see as much as possible. At the earliest stage of reading, we want to try to refrain from interpreting and applying until we've read well until we know what the words are. These steps are important, interpretation and application, but they come later. Remember that interpretive journey, if any of you were here last time. So our first step is to read seriously, to note as many details as possible, to observe as closely as a CSI team, read, CSI team reads a crime scene, and to probe into every detail, to read as carefully as Kevin read Whitney's 
email. So serious reading and love letters. I'm going to use an illustration that's been used many, many times by a lot of teachers of literary material, the Bible included, um, that some of you have heard before, but it's worth revisiting. Here's the goal of reading the Bible carefully. We want to grasp the meaning of the text as God has intended it. So who knows the illustration I'm about to give with this uh, image on the screen? Many of you have heard it before, but anybody know where I'm headed now? Yep, Agassiz and the fish. This is written by a student. It was more than 15 years ago that I entered into the laboratory of Professor Agassiz, and I told him I'd enrolled my name in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my object in coming, my antecedents generally, the mode in which I afterwards proposed to use the knowledge that I might acquire, and finally, whether I wished to study any special branch. To the latter, I replied that while I wished to be well-grounded in all departments of zoology, I purposed to devote myself specially to insects. When do you wish to begin? Doctor asked me. Right now, I replied. This seemed to please him, and with an energetic very well, he reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Take this fish, he said, and look at it. We call it Hemulion. By and by, I will ask you what you have seen. With that, he left me. I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment. For gazing at the fish, I did not, uh, did not commend itself as an ardent entomologist. In 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. And I started in search of the professor who had, however, left the museum. And when I returned, after lingering over some of the odd animals stored in the upper apartment, my specimen was dry all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as a means to resuscitate it from a fainting fit and looked with anxiety for a return of a normal sloppy appearance. This little excitement over not this this little excitement over, nothing was to be done but return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly, from behind, beneath, above, sideways, at a three-quarters view. Just as ghastly, I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary. So with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar, and for an hour I was free. Now he turns it. On my return, I learned that Professor Agassiz had been at the museum, but had uh, had been at the museum, but had gone and would not return for several hours. My fellow students were too busy to be disturbed by continued conversation. Slowly, I drew forth that hideous fish, and with a feeling of desperation again, I looked at it. I might not use a magnifying glass, um, pardon me, I might use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were interdicted. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my fingers down its throat to see how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish, and now with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then, the professor returned. That is right, said Agassiz. A pencil is one of the best eyes. 
I am glad to notice, too, that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. With these encouraging words, he added, well, what is it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of the parts, whose names were still unknown to me. The fringed gill arches and the movable operculum, whatever, maybe you know what that is, uh, the pores of the head, fleshly lips, the lidless eyes, the lateral line, the spinous fin, the forked tail, the compressed and arched body. When I had finished, he waited as if expecting more. And then, with an air of disappointment, you have not looked very carefully. Why not? He continued more earnestly. You haven't seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish itself. Look again. Look again. And he left me to my misery. I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one new thing after another until I saw how just the professor's, how just the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and when, toward its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied, I'm certain I do not, but I do see how little I saw before. That's the next best, he said earnestly, but I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you will be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of my fish all night, Studying without the object before me, what this unknown but most visible feature might be, but also without reviewing my new discoveries, I must give an exact account of them to the, the next day. I had a bad memory, so I walked home by Charles River in a distracted state with my two perplexities. The cordial greeting from the professor the next morning was, was reassuring. He was a man who seemed to be quite as anxious as I that I should see for myself what he saw. Do you perhaps mean, I asked, that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs? His thoroughly pleased, of course, of course, repaid the wakeful hours of the previous night. After he had discoursed, discoursed most happily and enthusiastically, as he always did, upon the importance of the point, I ventured to ask what I should do next. Oh, look at your fish, he said. And he left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned and heard my new catalog. That is good. That is good, he repeated. But that's not all. Go on. And so for three long days, he placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look, 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 was his repeated injunction. This was the best entomological lesson I ever had a lesson whose influence was extended to the details of every subsequent study, a legacy the professor has left to me, as he left it to many others, of inestimable value which we could not buy, with which we cannot part. It concludes this way. The fourth day, a second fish of the same group was placed beside the first one, and I was bidden to point out the resemblances and the differences between the two. Another and another followed until the entire family lay before me and a whole legion of jars covered the table and all the surrounding shelves. The odor had become a pleasant perfume, and even now the sight of an old six-inch worm-eaten cork brings fragrant, fragrant memories. The whole group of hemulions was thus brought into review, 
and whether engaged upon the dissection of the internal organs, preparation and examination of the bony framework, or the description of the various parts, Agassiz's training in the method of observing facts in their orderly arrangement was ever accompanied by the urgent exhortation not to be content with them. Facts are stupid things, he would say, until brought in connection with some general law. At the end of eight months, it was almost with reluctance that I left these friends and turned to insects. But what I gained by this outside experience has been of greater value than years of later investigation in my favorite groups. So sentences. I remember the, Dr. Hayes, one of the professors that wrote the book that we're using as the guide, uh, first day of Bible interpretation class, I'm probably a sophomore uh, in college, maybe could quote three or four verses to you, didn't know my way around Old or New Testament, uh, very limited understanding, brand new Christian, uh, converted at the end of my freshman year. First day of class, he gives us Acts 1-8, and he says, Tonight, I want you to make 40 observations on Acts 1-8 and bring them to class written out tomorrow. Don't use anything but your Bible. Okay, so I struggled to get 15. Uh, eventually, I was like, how many letters are curved? How many letters are straight? Um, the next day, he said, okay, come back tomorrow with 20 more on Acts 1-8. So by the end of two days, you have 60 observations on one verse. And it's this exercise, like forcing us to look at the details. Now, he wasn't wanting us to look at the curves and the straight. But I was counting punctuation. I counted how many letters. I counted how many spaces. I mean, I was running out of ways to get to 60 for the assignment. But serious reading is something you would do with a love letter. The second thing that we want to use the rest of our time for just about except for hopefully a few minutes at the end, we'll try to apply it to Romans 12, 1 and 2, is what are the things we should be looking for when we read sentences or clusters of sentences? A pericope is a complete thought. What are the things we should look for that show us where a thought begins and ends, even if that complete thought contributes to something larger? Um, what should we look for in those units of thought and particularly Sentences. Well, today we'll consider nine things that we should look for. First, pretty uh, obvious, the more you read, like staring at a fish, he started counting the scales. Uh, he started seeing that the organs were symmetrical. You should look for repetition of words. So we're not going to read it aloud. Really quick, what words repeat? Okay, what's another word? Love. What's another word? Okay, so here's some examples. I don't know if it shows up clearly enough, but world is repeated, love or loves is repeated, lust is repeated. There are other repetitions, okay? That's one of the first steps of forcing yourself to look at the details of a sentence, repetition. Because words only have context and meaning. So for example, what does world mean? Is it the ball of dirt on which you now sit? Is it the system of the way people think? Is it the people that inhabit the planet? The New Testament uses that word all three of those ways. And there's no way you can know, and I can know, which way it's being used 
unless I have some context around me to give it meaning. Like the word, I've used this at Grace many times. I don't know why this one word stuck in my head so much. I almost always use it, forgive me. The word blue. I see a lot of blue in here. But that's not what I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of the feeling you have when you're sad. But it's spelled the same way. So that word only has meaning in context. Do you feel blue? That's obviously not a color. Right? So words have meaning in context. You need to look for repetition. Number two, contrast. You know, what's different? So what's, what's different here? Gracious. Yeah. So the word but signifies that you're looking at something different. That should trigger us as we're reading sentences. And the more, the more often we learn to see it, the more often we'll quickly see it. Right? It's exercising a muscle. Like Romans 6.23. Finish this sentence. For the wages of sin is death. Right. That, that's a contrast. Romans 5.8. For you formerly were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Or 1 John 5. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Everything after the but contrasts with everything before the but. So you've got to go a little further than one sentence to get the whole contrast. All right, so that's something we want to look for. Not only contrast, but comparison. Okay? What's compared here? Yeah? Okay, so anytime you see the word like or so also, you know you're going to be bumping into something that's meant by the biblical author to be compared. And again, just like the word but will stand out to you, so also will those words, so also. And like, like James chapter 3, verse 3 through 6. Now if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also... The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. So the comparison between the horse, the ship, the tongue, and how a small thing can have such a massive impact. That's comparison. All right, lists. Uh, I don't know if you have a Bible that's got wide enough margins in it for you to make some notes, but however you keep notes when you read your Bible, I want to encourage you to bullet list the things that God lists. It'll help you to start to see, that it happens in today's passage, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. That's boom, boom, boom. That's a list. And you'll start to see these. What is a list here? Yep, there it is. Lust, lust, boast. There's lists all over the place. Ninefold configuration of Christ that's seen in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. 
those fruits are tangled together growing on the same vine because they're just a, not just, they are a portrait of Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's a list. There's a lot of those in the Bible and being able to see them will help you just organize the material in front of you. Cause and effect. You guys know what this is? This happened because that happened. What's the effect? That's and what's the cause and what's the effect? Yeah, yeah. So the question is, what do you want? Do you want to turn away wrath, or do you want to stir up anger? And this proverb will be a good guide for our life on how to produce the result we want. John 3.16 is a cause effect. Something deep in the heart of God. Love. For the world. Is that the ball of dirt? No, it's a different kind of use of the word, right? It's the people in it. Because of the love, He therefore gave. That's There's a root and a fruit. He gave His only begotten Son. Psalm, one, Psalm uh, 13, verse 6, I sing to the Lord. Why? Because He has dealt bountifully with me. Fruit, God's bountiful dealing. Uh, root, God's bountiful dealing. Fruit, you sing to Him. You praise Him. You extol Him. All right, so that's cause and effect. Figures of speech. Uh, this is, we, we speak like this all the time, even without designating that we're speaking like this, because we just understand it intuitively as part of being English speakers. Does this verse mean that there's like a piece of metal on your foot with a shade on top of it that's got a little dial or a string that you pull? No. It's a figure of speech. God's Word lights your steps one at a time. He might not give you 100 steps ahead, but He'll give you the next one. It's a lamp to your feet, God's Word. That's a figure of speech. Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, run and not get tired, walk not become weary. Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23, 27. Uh, they look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're just full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, fortress, deliverer, rock, refuge, shield, horn of my salvation, stronghold. All figures of speech, they're supposed to help us understand something true of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Again, figure of speech using the agricultural metaphors. So that's figure of speech. Conjunctions. Uh, somebody give me an example of a conjunction. Very good. There you go. All, all, all the moms are happy right now if any of the kids answered the question. Alright, so conjunctions are the mortar that holds the bricks, that's the phrases and sentences together. It's a good way to think about them. Um, look for these words. You just heard a smattering of them. Look for the therefores and the sos and the ands and the buts. Um, man, I've got several passages here. Let me just limit. Colossians 3.12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
that conjunction at the beginning is, is really helpful. Uh, Genesis 6-8 is massive in light of Genesis 6-7. The Lord said, I will blot out man, 6-7, whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them, 6-8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One righteous man on earth built a place of refuge from God's just wrath for other men on earth. Hmm. I know somebody like that. All right, so here's some conjunctions. The wages of sin is death, but for God's eternal life. We talked about this earlier with contrast, but you're also looking for these conjunctions. This is also a figure of speech, by the way. Payment, gift. Verbs. These are super important. Uh, the smart, really smart, nerdy, scholarly gifts to the kingdom of Christ uh, that taught my classes in undergrad and uh, graduate school could not, I mean, they, they worked hard to try to overstate the significance of verbs. Uh, one of the first things I do is a little Bible study software. I'll just find all the verbs in a paragraph and just look at them and see how they function. Are they passive or active? Verbs are important because they communicate the action of the sentence. But it's important to know who's performing the action, who's responsible for it. So show me a verb or a verb phrase. Yeah. So have been raised would be one here. And then, yep, keep seeking would be another. But one is passive and one is active. Right? One happens to you. That's passive. The, the action happens to the subject. That makes it a passive verb. It, that, the subject receives the action. That's passive. Or the subject does the action. That's active. So paying attention to those details and sentences, it, it, I mean, just opens vistas of wonder, especially when you're looking at gospel action passages. Um, just a beautiful territory to help get insight into what God has said. Um, in Ephesians 1.11, there's two passives and one active. We have obtained, having been predestined, and he also is the one who works all things. So here's an example where the same subject is the one doing the action, but in two of them, we receive, we obtain, we've been predestined. And another one, he's causing, we're still the recipients, but it's active there. Okay, hope that helps in quick overview. Finally, pronouns. Um, what are some pronouns, what's examples of pronouns? Me, myself, and I. There you go, brother. First person. There you go. That's the problem since Genesis 3. <laughs> Um, yeah, so here's, here's a sentence from God with some pronouns. Uh, there's the our and the us. So paying attention to whether pronouns are singular or plural. And maybe one day in our lifetime we'll get the Southern English translation with the plural yous into y'alls. Uh, it's really powerful to see that when, like in Hebrews, almost every you... Wow, you is plural. 
it's just powerful when you start to see he's talking to a church. That you've got to have those people in your life, and you have to be proactive to be in the lives of those people if you want the blessing of that verse. There's a lot of that. And the pronouns just, again, open a lot of vistas. Here's Philippians 1. Uh, we're not going to read it for time's sake, but there's a bunch of pronouns in that passage. So those are nine things, and you shouldn't feel like, oh, no, I need a chart for every verse and, like, categorize all these. No, the, the more you exercise your muscles, the, the more natural seeing these things will become. But having a mindset to look for them will be helpful. Okay, uh, we're going to take about four minutes to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we'll have about 10 minutes for interaction of any, anything uh, that you guys want to talk about. Uh, let's get a volunteer reader to read these verses. Go for it. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Very good. So right at the beginning, you know, there's a word we always want to pay careful attention to. That's the therefore. And like all the New Testament epistles, you'll start to see this as well when you read not just sentences and pericopes and not just chapters, but books, front to last. You'll start to see turning points. Now there's definitely imperatives in the first half of epistles, New Testament books of the Bible. Do this, do this. There's commands. Most of them are in the second part. And in the first part, they're mainly indicatives. What God has done, not what you must do. So just seeing that is going to help your Bible reading. So you're reading Romans, for example. The first command in the book of Romans is in chapter 6, verse 12. Five and a half chapters, no command. Tons of you got a big problem, one to three, and all of you have it. You're all sinners. Four, five, and six is largely what God has done in Christ to save us. And on the basis of that indicative, what God has done for us in Christ, then after Paul glories in the gospel, eight, nine, and ten, and then celebrates the uh, way God's going to fold up all humanity in his redeeming purposes, Jews and Gentiles, 11, after he's laid out the gospel for 11 chapters, the therefore that you see right here, is the turning point of the whole book. It's not just the turning point of the last few thoughts. It's like gospel, 11 chapters, therefore live in light of this. And so seeing that connection is, is really helpful. Um, there's a pronoun, I, that's Paul. And there is a strong active verb, urge. This is not a suggestion. If you don't think this is important, Paul would say, you and he are not thinking about the same gospel. This is urgent call to action. You. Well, who's the you? It's the Roman church. And he calls them brethren. They're siblings in Christ. 
But if you'll look at the your, your, you, 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 your, those are all plural. You're not talking to you individually. You can't do this by yourself. You have to have a church, and the book is written to a congregation, the church at Rome. Obviously, the repetition of God's name. And then you get a figure of speech. This is irony. It's the only place in Scripture where the sacrifice willingly climbs up on the altar. In the Old Testament, you would kill the lamb or the goat, and then you would put its carcass on the altar. This isn't a dead sacrifice. This is a lot. This is you voluntarily climbing on the altar and laying yourself out before God saying, you can have my life, all of me. That's a voluntary sacrifice. And then this a repetition of acceptable, acceptable to God, good, acceptable, and perfect. God, again, being the audience in verse 2. Uh, there's a big-time conjunction in the middle of verse 2. Not this, but that. And uh, the tense of the phrases, aorist, one of these is always happening to us. You're either being conformed, to the world. Now there's that word again in verse 2. You see it right here? Is that a ball of dirt? Is that the people that inhabit the ball of dirt? No, no. That's the world's system. That's the world's way of thinking and operating. That's the sinful system of world power. Don't be conformed to that. That is happening to you because there's no neutral at the beginning of verse 2. Or, this is happening to you. You are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're not in la-la land of neither. One or the other is happening to you today. And this command is not that. All right, so the purpose statement uh, introduces the effect. All of God's mercy in the previous chapter. All of God's will in the following chapters. We're to live acceptably to God. That is his will. We're to do so in light of the gospel, by the power of the gospel. Such a little example, like Agassiz's fish staring at two, at, at two verses, one complete thought, and a lot more could be said. So if we said, okay, tomorrow bring back 50 observations of those two verses, and then the professor said, oh, that's good, you hadn't looked closely enough yet. Bring back 50 more. Bring back 50 more. That's, that's the labor that we want. Uh, in our Bible study. So eight minutes instead of ten for some interaction uh, and thoughts. So I'll just open the floor. I can go back to a slide if you got a specific question about that or a comment, addition, consideration you would like to bring out. Yes, sir. You were using a term I'm not familiar with. Uh, pericope. A pericope. P-R-P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. Yeah, it's like um, complete thought. A pericope. It starts and ends somewhere. Do you have a question about it or just that the extent of it? Yeah, similar. Yeah, similar to a paragraph. One paragraph may have more than one complete thought. So, English we often use the term paragraph, but 
Yeah, you could have two or three pericopes in one paragraph. Okay. Other questions, comments? Yes, sir. Can you go back to Romans 12? Yep. And you said you said the world word world. Um, mm -hmm. You said it was the the system definition. Can you obvious state the obvious words? How did you come to that conclusion? Okay. Um, in terms of stating the obvious, sometimes this is helpful. This is going to be like embarrassingly bad, so I confess that on the front end. Um, I would like to see you try to become the ball of dirt and water that you are now sitting on. All right, become that. Well, you can't do it, right? You can't become the earth. So I know it's not that. Then there are places that I'm aware of, John's gospel, uh, is replete with this. John, one of John's favorite words is world. Sometimes he says sentences like John does. This is Paul. Sometimes John says the whole world has gone after him. Um, that definitely doesn't mean the ball of dirt. And that doesn't mean the evil system of way of thinking. That means people. But it clearly doesn't mean all the people on the entire planet. John didn't think that. Right, because Jesus was in a little place at a specific time, and those people went after him. Look, the whole world is what the detractors said about people following Jesus. So here, world system, um, as far as I'm aware, this may expose my ignorance as well, is the only other category I'm aware of, a worldly way of thinking. Uh, thoughts that are influenced by this evil world system. And so, I hope that answers your question. But that's how I get to that in, in this context. Yes, Matt? To agree with you and build on that, you also can use the conjunction, but they're Here? opposites. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Right? If, if I tell you the word is down and I want the opposite, you all say, oh, uh, yeah. if I say to you, look after the but, be yeah. transformed by the renewing of your mind, yeah. what's the opposite? Yeah. Well, it's that stuff there. Yeah, don't think. This world. Yeah. Think this way, don't think that, that way. That's good. Definition. Yep. And the Proverbs and the Psalms are so full of that. They're so full of that. So if you don't understand what the first part, you can look at the second part to understand what the first part is. They're a pair, right? And yeah. they inform one another. Yeah. Good. Okay, somebody near the front. Uh, had... you go back to the nine things, so take a picture of that. Okay, yeah, take you a picture, man. <laughs> So one, one reason we're all very thankful for Ben Bailey is he does stuff that we have no idea about until sometime way down the line. Like, we're going to get Emily a T-shirt. This is unrelated to Ben. We're going to get Emily a T-shirt that says it was in the announcements uh, so that she can wear it to church every week because y'all ask her stuff that was in the announcements. Um, but one of the things Ben does is takes these slides and puts them on the Grow podcast which is different than the sermon podcast. And you can click through them. And if you don't want to unmute it, you can listen to what we're saying as you click through them. So whoever took a picture, good for you. You can get all the slides so on. There you go. Thank you, Ben Bailey. It was in the announcements. <laughs> okay, we have time for maybe two more. If anybody's got a comment request. Yes, brother. 
Yeah. That's good, man. That's good. Uh, just a complete thought. Uh, when I first started reading the Bible, uh, one of my old pastors tried to teach me how to break down the thoughts as you read, especially New Testament, Old Testament, whatever. Yeah. But, I mean, it made it so much understandable uh, in reading it and understanding it when you break down the thoughts. But just a, a more of FYI, that's something I'm teaching my kids now is how to break it down in the thoughts. And Great. they're kind of getting the grasp of it, but but it helps them learn easier. Uh, instead of just reading a ball of words to them, yeah. but just trying to teach them how to break the thoughts down as you read. But I know for me, it helped me. Uh, so just, I guess that's why I teach your kids to uh, break it down. No doubt we should be doing it well. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I slept through English class or skipped it. You know, that, that, I missed a lot of this when I could have gotten it. So, Ronnie, and then Charles. Go, Ronnie. Philippians 4.13, yep. the greater passage would be what you're referring to, pericope. Totally. So that you don't, yeah. you've got one thought, but that thought cannot, it has to be informed by the, yeah. Yeah. the passage around it. Yeah. Philippians what? 4.13. I can okay. do all no, things. I was just going to go back. Uh, you were talking about paragraphs. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know the text of the definition of Pericopes and all that, but a paragraph should be like a topic sentence and then examples and illustrations of yep. that thought. So you said there could be several Pericopes in the paragraph. Yeah. Okay. So let me give you. A, I think this might help. This. This is all we have time for today. And I, good news, we have 18 sessions, and we'll just keep talking about these kinds of things. If you look at a paragraph in the Bible, our Bible translators, in most of the translations we have in the room today, have set off paragraphs. They've indented the first sentence, and then they don't indent again till they get to another one. Not every translation does it that way. But when that happens, look for something. Inductive or deductive? Is there a thesis sentence at the top and then everything below unpacks it? Or is there supporting thoughts for the big conclusion? Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is one sentence in the original. It's a long run-on sentence. Paul would have failed English grammar class. Because he just rejoicing in the Father, Son, and Spirit, planning, accomplishing, and applying our redemption. That's Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. It's deductive. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 3. How has he done that? Boom, 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 boom. Right? So it flows from the main thought. There's other paragraphs where it's the other way. And it's inductive. It leads you to the conclusion. Ah, this is wonderful. Like the doxology in today's passage and the doxology at the end of Romans 11. Today's passage, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because of all the stuff right ahead of it. Like Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm the foremost of all. Because of that, praise him. Christology, soteriology, Christ and salvation leads to doxology, worship, praise. So paragraphs 
are either inductive or deductive. In them, they're going to have like that paragraph, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, has three complete thoughts. The Father planned your redemption. The Son accomplished your redemption. The Holy Spirit applies your redemption. They're bracketed, if you want to count verse 3, by to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's one paragraph. That's multiple complete thoughts. And it's also deductive. That flows out of the main point, which is said at the beginning. Brian Smith starts every sermon by praying the same verse, and I love it. And he starts every sermon by saying, today's sermon in one sentence will be, uh, would be, and then he tells you. And the rest of the sermon seeks to prove that that sentence is what the passage is saying. That's Brian's form of preaching. Brian is super organized. he got a spreadsheet for everything. He's probably got a spreadsheet for who's sitting in what chair right now in this room. All right? That's the way his, that's the way his mind works. Y'all know my mind ain't like that. Right? It's like, maybe you're like, bush, beat around it, point. All right, that's my mind. So everybody's different. We need everybody. Beauty of the body. You know, a lot of, a lot of people influence in our life. But um, i got to say this, too, because it relates to the sermon, and then I'll pray and dismiss you. We need some help resetting the room so Redeemer's still happy with us after I pray. For today's sermon, Paul's giving the positive for last week's negative. Verse 3 to 11, people are using the law unlawfully. They're using the Bible unbiblically. They're using verses of the Bible for the wrong reason. That's the enemy's way of using the word. Paul, I believe, shows today that maybe not in your first reading, but eventually your interpretation has to go to Christ in the gospel. And I think Paul shows that. And so what we, part of the reason we're doing a class like this is uh, twofold. My seminary professor said we should work them out of a job. I heard that in every class. Seminaries shouldn't exist because churches should just teach all the stuff seminaries teach. Okay? We're going to give it a shot. Mainly, mainly, we don't want to be unbiblical users of the Bible, unlawful users of the law. And it takes a church to help us realize, oh, man, I was stuck on that one point that I thought I had all this support for. But it's not really the point at all. I missed it. Well, how do you ever come to discover that? A community of faith where we humbly grow together in biblical maturity. Father, thank you so much for this class. Pray that we'll become better observers of what you have revealed in your word, paying attention to plural and singular and past and present and active and passive, repetition and all the other things, not just for a science project, but because we want to think your thoughts. We want to know your mind. We want our mind to be transformed and renewed as we meditate on your word and pray. We ask that the Holy Spirit will help us to grow from wherever we're at, one step closer to Christ, through your word, with your people. Pray this in Jesus' name.